did you, even in an audition process, are they explaining or testing you in a way to see if you're going to be able to act against nothing, essentially? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to a, a sad, quite honestly, a sad, a downbeat, uh, say bonus episode, I guess, in a sense, because I'm going to play you some content that uh, was previously published on the show in 2020. But it's a sad episode because that uh, the content I'm going to play you is an interview with the now sadly deceased uh, Cindy Morgan, iconic actor from the 1980s who we first fell in love with during uh, Caddyshack. Uh, she played the absolutely stunning sexy, strong-willed, uh, you know, just a powerhouse of her woman, uh, Lacey Underall, the character. And the real woman, the actor Cindy Morgan, wasn't all that different in a sense. You know, she was beautiful, talented, uh, yeah, and spoke her mind direct, just a wonderful person by all accounts. And uh, look, it's sad to lose anybody in your life. Um, and, and sometimes it's sad to lose folks who you... <laughs> You don't even, you didn't even know very well, right? We hear about the passing of a celebrity and we may never, may never even have spoken with them, but we admired them from their work and that's still sad. It could be quite devastating. Uh, Cindy was a little more than that because, um, to me, because she, well, or, or early on in our show, a few years ago, when I first started the show, and believe it or not, I started the show during a time when there were very few to none uh, 1980s pop culture podcast. Now, now there's just tons. And it frustrates me because, you know, you got to compete with this noise now, you know, back then there was just a handful of us and the other ones weren't covering the, 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 the content in the way that I had hoped. Otherwise I never would have made a show. Honestly, I would have just listened to theirs and been a fan of theirs. What I wanted in the show and why I created my show originally was I wanted to honor folks from the 1980s. I didn't want to just look back and say, Hey, remember that movie from years ago? And, what? and here's a summary of the movie and here's who starred in the movie. And here's the plot. And no, I don't want to do that. Or here's a song and it came out. Look, we do a little bit of that as just, you know, information on our show. But what we dig into is, you know, how something happened, why it happened, why it's important, maybe why it's a, a best example of something ever and how it continues to affect us personally or the, the media that we still consume today. You know, and that's what we do on our show. Anyway, back to the beginning of our show. I w it was less than a year old, our show, and I had spoken with a number of folks, but no celebrities. You know, I spoke to professors and authors and uh, other folks, you know, that I found locally that I knew I could get into my studio uh, before I started doing the, the interviews remote. But early on, there was just a, there was a handful of folks, and I had dozens on a list, but a handful of folks who I wanted to talk to sooner than later because I was really intrigued by what I had learned about their stories. And I really liked their work. And Cindy Morgan was one of those people. And even though I hadn't had much of a track record of speaking with celebrities by then, in fact, I may have not spoken with any. I think at my recollection, there was like a handful, maybe three or four folks who said yes all at the same time without knowing each other had said yes. You know, with, with only knowing the, you know, again, the various folks that I had spoken to, academics and so forth. And Cindy was one of those people. And not only was she generous with her time, she was very honest and very open. And I'm talking about before the interview when we talked, after the interview, we continued to talk. During email exchanges, she was a very open person. 
But in particular, what I'm going to play for you today is an interview where she tells us about her career, how she got to be in Hollywood, and then the unfortunate incident uh, that led to the demise of her film career. Now, she had somewhat of a television career after she starred in Caddyshack and then shortly thereafter appeared in Tron as well. But films for her, you know, uh, she wasn't the star she should have been or could have been. But for this incident that she's going to talk about here involving producer John Peters, uh, who told her, and I may be paraphrasing, but I'm going to get the swear word right, so brace yourself, that because she refused to do a Playboy spread uh, during uh, what was a film, it was supposed to be a film shoot, of, it was a film shoot of a scene, you know, in which she is naked in Caddyshack. John Peter Springs, this Playboy photographer on her during the scene and says, oh, we're also doing, you're also doing a Playboy spread today. And because she said no, he said to her, you're fucked, end quote, uh, according to Cindy. And, you know, and then threatened, he then he literally took away, you know, different uh, contractual ways that she would have made money from her work on Caddyshack. And then, you know, she'll tell the story, you know, it went on that seemed that his threat was, was made true. Uh, and various things happened uh, as a result. Anyway, so it really, I'm, I'm playing this interview because I, I, I want you to hear that story, in, in particular because I don't see in all of the articles that are being written about Cindy, anything. For most of the publications, you don't hear, you, they're not writing a word about this, what happened with John Peters. One speculated, well, isn't it curious that this beautiful and talented woman didn't really have much of a career after Tron? Well, why is that, do you think? Maybe you could dig a little further into it. And as Cindy says, and again, I bring this up because as Cindy says during this interview, this kind of shit is still happening today. But even the one example I could think of where a publication even mentioned John Peters or her, you know, her allegations, again, you dig into John Peters, this is a guy who's been sued at least five times for sexual harassment. Most of those cases were settled out of court, it's believed. One, the woman actually won a judgment of $3.3 million. And she... In that case, what she said he did was all terrible things. So, and that's not alleged. That case really happened, right? So there you go. Anyway, but in, in, even in the story that mentioned John Peters, which I think was from Entertainment Weekly, it was like a passing note where she's, oh, well, John Peters said this and that, you know. No. Anyway, Cindy here at, talks with us at length. And maybe, this may be the only time she spoke as much as she did about this particular matter. Uh, but she tells us about her career again. So I, I want to certainly make sure that's out there. And I want to make sure folks know about this thing that happened to this woman who was destined for stardom. Uh, but unfortunately, sadly, in the last, certainly the last few years of her life, uh, and certainly in the last couple of months, had been struggling to find just a place to live that was safe and affordable. Uh, and again, I don't want to go too much into this right now, but um, I, I know I did a rant about it elsewhere on social media. You can find if you want. But forces were gathering against her. And even she documented on her Facebook page tweets or, or not tweets, texts where folks literally said things to her like, you know, and again, they were trying to get her out of her apartment, I guess is what was happening. But in connection with that, folks made threats like, you know, if you keep texting me, you'll regret it. And one of her other uh, Facebook posts, she mentioned something about somebody and was afraid that if they saw what she said, that she would be, I believe she says, quote, a dead person. Anyway, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not alleging, I'm not even alleging something happened. Nobody is. But my point is, <laughs> this woman deserved a bigger career and certainly in the very least, like all of us do, 
a peaceful twilight, right? All right, that's enough uh, outrage, I suppose, for now. So take a listen to this interview with Cindy. Uh, again, by all accounts, a fantastic woman. Certainly, f- for to her fans, a talented and a beautiful woman. Please welcome to the show... Cindy Morgan. Hey, Cindy, how are you doing? Doing great, Will. How about you? I'm, I'm doing well, too. Thank you for talking to us today. So our show has set out to prove objectively that the 1980s was the best decade for pop culture, period. Uh-huh. We'll fight your decade. You have empirical scientific <laughs> evidence proving this. Yes, we're working, well, we're working on that. But we are speaking to folks, experts like yourself, who appeared in oh, some yeah. of the iconic you know, media that we love from the 1980s. And we actually do speak with the occasional professor and uh, author that gives us some more of that uh, empirical data. Well, to tell you the truth, it was, it was a special time. It was a lot of the scary things had just started happening. It was right between Mm -hmm. the 50s where everything was wrong and the 60s (laughs) where everything exploded and the 70s where there was a lot of experimentation. And the 80s things started to get a little serious, well, a lot more serious with certain things. And then by the 90s and and the 2000s, well, look 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 at today. Yeah. So... Yeah. And it seems it seems to me that and again, we did speak with some uh, political science uh, professors and some we spoke to a congressman even about that time that it was interesting. It's interesting that the media seemed almost, you know, in in stark contrast, you know, we had these bright poppy songs and fun movies where we had folks, you know, in the middle class suffering because factories were closing. You know, that's right. It's curious to me, but it seems to be the case, you know, so maybe everything in the 80s wasn't great, but it birthed, you know, much like in the Renaissance, some great media. But you're of a different generation, you know, you're a little bit older than I am. Mm-hmm. So that's a polite way of saying. <laughs> <laughs> so what would, what would you, so I consider myself a kid of the eighties. I was born at the beginning of the seventies, but I, you know, I uh-huh. went, I went from being a, what they'd call a tween now to being a, an adult by the end of the eighties. And that's where you make a lot of decisions, fall in love with a lot of things. That's where, you know, you start formatting how you, what you love, what yeah. you like, what, what you want to do, your, your avocations, possibly your vocations. So what what would you consider you to be a child of, or what was your generation? It, it all blew open for me uh, when I went to college. I had 12 years of Catholic school, very tightly uh, restricted, and like literally every breath <laughs> out of my butt. But luckily in high school, uh, it was an all girls Catholic high school, but mm-hmm. luckily uh, I was uh put into AP, AP, well, they didn't call it then, but AP classes. So there were 30 of us together for four years and we had different reading lists. And because we all were so, we were together in all of our classes. What the nice thing was, it was was really hard on on the nuns because (laughs) we we worked as a unit. It was was like that, um, gosh, uh, that that, that old movie, Stalag 17. We (laughs) really had, you know, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And then we do whatever the heck we wanted because they put all of us together in one class. They took the top 10% of all the students. So I learned a lot about a lot of things. And then when I got to college, I actually was offered a grant from uh, the state of Illinois to go to the Illinois Institute of Technology and really wanted to go because I wanted for my father to become a mechanical engineer. Mm. And I walked in and it was all guys and four girls, which I understand it still is. So, yeah, unfortunately. Uh, and, and I, I was, uh, I went into college with a stammer, a distinct stammer. And, uh, I made a hard left, went to Northern Illinois university and uh, majored in, I was a terrible speaker, but, but I was a good writer. And, and, and the first time a professor Ever came over and said, you know, you're good at this. Consider communications. Mm. 
I, I, I came on and broadcast. I was actually writing news professionally while I was in school. I imagine that would be terrifying to, you know, as you say, if you had a stammer at the time to be suggested to go into communications. Then. Well, I, I didn't think of it as terrifying. I, I, I more looked at the path. I, I more looked okay. at what was right in front of me. And, and, and communications was, at that time, three separate things. It was the uh, psychology behind making a speech, how to engage an audience. That's one element. Broadcasting was one element. And speech pathology was an element. So there are several elements of, of communications that they took apart. And it worked well as me. I came in with a stammer and came out and broadcast. So it worked. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like the different, uh, you know, those three different areas that you mentioned uh, played nicely into ultimately, I imagine, into acting, uh, including the psychology. Well, yeah, it, it actually does uh, because uh, pretty much what they, the psychology behind, I can break it down really simply with Shakespeare's no. friends, Romans and countrymen, lend me your ears. I huh. now the, that whole, yeah, everybody knows those lines, but they don't know why Shakespeare had Mark Antony say that. He's walking into a hostile crowd. Right. Think about this in politics. He's walking into a crowd that said, we just killed Caesar and you're his friend and we don't want to hear anything out of here. So he comes out and says, Hey, look, friends, Romans, and conjuring. I, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Uh, of course, Caesar made all of you rich and conquered half the world, but Brutus is a good man. And of course, you know, Caesar did this and the other thing for you, and now you can all eat, but Brutus is a good man. But it's, So what it is, is finding the common denominator, in not a sneaky way, in a practical way, finding the common denominator with the people you're speaking to, because there's always a human common denominator. Heck, I was outside feeding baby ducks today. I found a, I found the common denominator. Uh, don't chase, don't chase them <laughs> and throw the food to, you know, you can find, if you can find that, that's how to communicate that because communication doesn't mean talking. It means right. getting your point across as intended. And I imagine the, this skill again with communication and, and like you said, finding a connection helps not only with being a better performer, but you know, working in the audition room. So you got some producers or directors in there. How do you connect oh, yeah. with them to get them on your, win them over, I suppose. Right. I would my imagine. meetings are always better than my readings <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's such an awkward, uh, bizarre setup. And I actually, worked as an associate producer on the other side and i always had the feeling that everybody just got there and nobody really knew what they were doing well when i was on the other side of the desk i found out that's actually the case <laughs> and it's and the person who got the job was not the person who did a, a, a detailed study of a character unless they are a character actor the person who got the job was the one who was most comfortable in their own mm. skin and the one who could talk who, who could go through the reading with the same tone and the same energy as they did when they were just having a conversation. Now, this is a lesson, though. You're an associate producer later, later, I imagine, right after you've been acting. Oh, yeah. So this is a, so at the time you're a young actor starting out. Was this a natural? Was this already something that you understood or had a gift for being? No, I never wanted to be an actor. No, no, I took some acting classes in college and was like, yikes, no, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, but, but broadcasting made sense because it was yeah. a job. Uh, uh, at the end, I was doing morning drive in Chicago. And I, I pity the DJ who came on after me because I wouldn't play crap. <laughs> I just, I just, I know. And, and then the program director would call me in and said, well, yeah, you know, the carpenters. I said, we're a rock and jazz station. <laughs> I could hear the commercials for the carpenters, so I could put two and two together. But, yep. but no, you know, and we got into the biggest fight because um, uh, the publicist. Now, this is an old TV show, Beretta. Sure. And Beretta, Beretta's bird. Yep. 
but Rhonda's Bird's publicist wanted to put him on my show. I thought this was hilarious. I'm going to get this bird on my show. I want to do this. And, and I went in and I, I talked to the program director, who was the owner's son. Those, those are tough arguments. And, and he goes, Cindy, birds can't talk. And I'm like, really, Terry? Birds can't talk? I said, the deal is I can do anything I want. This is radio. No, no, no. So after that day, at the end of every news segment, because I pulled wire copy and did my own news, at the end of every news segment, it would be, and today's animal story is, because every si- Now, the Chicago audience didn't know what I was up to, but they knew I was up to something. <laughs> you knew that by, by your reputation or by having listened yeah, to it? Just by the way, I, just by the way I, I handled see. it. And, and then I get called into the office every day. And I'd sit and lean in the doorway and I'd go, yes, Terry, yes, Terry, yes. How are my ratings? Good. See you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, thinking again about, you know, you're talking about how acting, you know, you weren't for it. Uh, at some point you go, I know you you go to L.A. To just, and among the many oh, things no. you do. Oh, I'm sorry. It, go ahead. it wasn't it wasn't that I loved acting. No. It was I was working at that radio station with no, Terry, yeah. my boss. And I was making $135 a week right. doing morning drive in Chicago, pulling numbers against the big boys. <laughs> and they, yeah. I got a call one Saturday and uh, from this guy. And he says, I'm taking away your overtime and I'm giving it to some guy. Mm-hmm. And I said, really? And there's a rumor that I walked out leaving a, a record spinning. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's entirely true, but <laughs> that's what let me know that I had to make a change. And in Chicago, nobody would let me go on camera. Nobody would let me do commercials. You're the voice mm-hmm. on the radio. Forget it. So I went out to L.A. and I just didn't tell anybody I couldn't act. Uh, I got an Irish. I just left that out of the conversation. I did go into my agent's office and pulled the resumes of people I recognized, flipped them over and saw where they studied. Mm-hmm. And, and I took a couple of those classes, which was a good thing because yeah. I lost my disc jockey voice because everything sounded like this. You know, I had to get rid of that right away. And I took a comedy improv class and that saved my butt. For Caddyshack. So so I got an Irish Spring commercial about the time I got out of my car, like within the first month, wow. which which was helpful. And then uh, in eight months, I got Caddyshack. Wow. So, wow. Okay. So again, go, what I was going to su- suggest or ask is, you know, you said in school acting you weren't for, but suddenly you're now auditioning, you know, for a film that's got some huge stars in it, you know, that were starting to right. break through at that time. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, again, I imagine it would be intimidating, especially considering the you know what you've given us as your history there you know what for example if i do a press junket in the city and they say oh let's listen to the station they're going to promote you i know leave that radio off i don't want to hear it i want to walk in clean do my job just like their people so when i knew i was working with these actors i stopped watching their, i wouldn't watch their work i i, I mm. so that i could i could walk on a set and there they are and there i am i know why i'm there i know why they're there and that's it and, and it was much easier to do my job because to me it was it's a job you right. know yeah and, 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 you know, I can be all impressed about them later. Right now, I got to do my job. And Lacey Underall wasn't, wasn't you know, the kind of person who could be all impressed. She had, in fact, she was quite the opposite. She was yes. like, this is, you're all really boring and getting on my nerves. <laughs> so when you're, when you audition for Caddyshack at some point, are you yeah. auditioning against, uh, uh, Chevy Chase and some of the, the your, your co-stars and, and, uh, well, I had, a, I had a first audition, and the thing is, I remember reading the script. I went, well, I'll never get this job. This isn't me. Twelve years, remember, 12 years of Catholic girls' school had a stammer. I was <laughs> right. fixed up with cousins for, for both of my proms. I mean, <laughs> okay, I, never, I got nothing to lose. I can do whatever I want in that audition. I got nothing to lose. Well, thank God I had that attitude because I was like, yeah, this is fine. This is fun. 
on the last audition, though, I started getting a little nervous because I was the only one who signed in to read for the role of Lacey. I went, holy crap, you think they think I really think I can do this? I mean, what, are they crazy? And I walked out of the parking lot, hyperventilating, walking around, walking around. I went, I thought, all right, forget about the lines, forget about the job, just do one thing. Whoever you're reading with, and hope it's a guy, make them sweat, look them dead in the eye. And, and <laughs> women, women know how to do that. And so all I focused, and I was reading with Doug Kenny. And when I looked at Doug, I, I looked straight through him. And and when he started sweating, I knew I had the job. Uh, that, that's amazing. That's an amazing a lesson for probably, I don't know, a lot of things. I love hearing stories about folks who it seems like, you know, there was a path to what they were going to do. You know, like all those little things mm-hmm. that, you, you know, the school, the stammering, communications lead you to this point where you're able to it's be ridiculous. Yeah. nobody who knows me could believe it i mean there's like this big gap <laughs> like how and so yeah uh yeah i don't know i mean i look and go i don't know how the hell i did that i really don't so initially it, it was surprising to me a lot you know stuff that we love from the 80s it's always surprising yeah. to me to look back and and see that at the time it wasn't as well received as it is today <laughs> uh, no uh, caddyshack tank yeah, it's it, you know it's it. I think I don't know that most folks you know casually would would think that because it's so huge now, and I really struggle to understand sort of like what the evolution of something is to becoming you know from like as you say something that tanked to cult status. What do you think? There's a lot of reasons. One of the big ones, and and this is some, well the rumor and the truth is that uh, it, with the exception of two people who were on the crew, right. uh, everybody was high every day. And so <laughs> so, that, so yes. what we actually not that. I'm recommending that uh, or advising that because a couple <laughs> of good friends died oh. shortly. I, I had mm. my, my agent from William Morris passed away. Wow. Doug Kenny passed away, as you know. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's not something I'd recommend. But, but sure. the, the truth is we were actually having a good time. And you can't fake that. You can't fake organically actually having a good time. And we were having the best time. I tell everybody about the piano scene. We, I was in a hot house in Florida, the Chevy, with the old giant Klieg lights. It was just so hot. I mean, they kept touching up my makeup. And and they were, uh, Harold Ramos said, uh, come over here and sit down next to Chevy by the piano. I said, why? He <laughs> <laughs> I mean, got to that point. Why? And he goes, just do it. Just do it. He goes, say, sing me a love song. I said, fine. So I said, sing me a love song. Now watch my eyes. And he starts playing the song, launches into the song, snorts the salt, tears the, tears the tequila, and I, you can tell when I realize we're shooting a scene mm. because all of a, I laugh to myself. I look down and go, oh, I get it. Because out of the corner of my right eye, I saw the damn red. red they saw the camera light on. That's how I found out we were shooting a scene. I didn't know we were filming. You know, I just thought they were being goofballs again, you know. <laughs> now, I wonder, is, is, was that something that uh, Chevy was in on? Was it just to get get a certain reaction out of you? Whereas at uh, that point in time, I couldn't tell you the truth. Okay. I, w- I he may or may not have been. They just asked me to go sit down, and he was going to do something. I'm like, yeah, all right, you know. And 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 people go, oh, why did, weren't you laughing all the time? No, that wasn't my job to laugh. My job was to be lazy. So <laughs> so you know the the and quite frankly, it's it's like playing sports. I'm sure you play a sport or or, or do something with games, yeah. video games. Or, yeah, sure, okay, yeah. And, and when you're doing it and you're doing it well, people say, aren't you having a good time? Well, yes and no. Yes. Yeah, kind of. But you're still working really, really hard. Your focus is 180 percent there. Right. You know, so, yeah, you're having a good time, but you're also putting your heart and soul into it. 
Yeah. So, and, and because you didn't have, so you were, you had at that point studied acting at least somewhat, right? Because you said you checked oh, out yeah, the resume. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. I, I had a couple classes. I got rid of that disc jockey voice. That was one class. Right. And I studied with a guy named Harvey Lembeck. His son, Michael, is is a, is a director. Sure. And uh, he was, he was a, a vaudeville, he was trained by Phil Silvers, who came from the vaudeville method, who came, there, sure. there actually were comedy rules. Right. And, and if you, if you, it's like music. If you break it down, I mean, you're either funny or you're not, or you can walk in and be funny and you won't even know you're being funny. I know people like that, too. Uh, that would have been Ted Knight's case. He really wasn't planning on being funny by being straight man to Rodney. That wasn't his plan. But, but, but he, he would yell at me. I mean, I would get sick before every class because he'd go, Morgan, Morgan, stop going for the joke. You're the straight. You set up the joke. Mm-hmm. And thank God he did. Because going head to head against Chevy would have been really stupid. Uh, well, actually, we did go head to head. There were a couple of times we were fighting, and uh, th- those were the. That was the best work we did, by the way. Mm. I imagine, yeah. Because yeah, uh, because yeah, well, you get your ad- adrenaline up and you your focus up, and if you play with somebody better than you, do you bring your A game or do you go home? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, knowing what I know, just knowing what I've learned about you in the last few minutes here, I, I know I know where, to, where you went. Um, and Harvey Lembeck, <laughs> okay. Harvey Lembeck, by the way, you mentioned Stalag Seventeen. He was in. He was on the stage and screen versions of Stalag Seventeen. Oh, he remarkably bright and on the money, and just knew it by instinct. What I understand of uh, improv and what I hear you saying, and my own limited experience with that, is that uh, what a great way to learn how to be fearless, you know, in in, in just straight acting. Well, you, you, you just take that fear and you turn it into adrenaline and shove it someplace else. You drive it into the scene. Right. Use the fear. Don't don't ignore it. Right. Use it, but right. but use it for for something you can you can do it with it. Yeah, it was it was. Uh, we never the, the script on Caddyshack. It was well thrown away. You know the original story was about the Caddies, right? Yes, and based on uh, on Harold Ramis in in the in the Murrays, and yes. Oh yeah, and and. Uh, all of a sudden, here here come four of the funniest men on the planet, Rodney Dangerfield, who didn't really care a thing about your script. What script? He was just he just would roll through a scene like a comic juggernaut, saying whatever the heck popped into his head. And Ted Knight's holding onto the script, going, "But I got lines, I got lines," you know, you know. And, and Ted was legitimately angry. By the end of the film, we all kind of had evolved into versions of our characters, so the improv became less and less of a challenge because there we were. <laughs> So just a couple of years after that, of course, you're in another iconic, very different film in the 1980s. Oh, probably, yeah. probably couldn't have two more different, you know, and huge, you know, certainly by today's standards, uh, films. Tron, mm-hmm. You're in Tron. Uh, you're right. When you play Laura slash Yuri because you're you're Laura in the real world. And then that sort of Wizard of Oz sort of, you know, dreamlike version. That's, of uh, Yeah, that's the way I used to describe when I had to do the press junket. That's mm-hmm. the, because I had no frame of reference. I would say it's like the Wizard of Oz. You're in the black and white world. That's your real world. And then suddenly you're in this other world, the computer world, where it's vividly beautiful. And you meet some of the people that you knew before. Because if you're a computer programmer, it picks up some of your thoughts, some of your inclinations, some of your recognitions. And it was really another reason it was really hard to do for the exact opposite. It didn't make any sense at all. Well, it's interesting, you know, you, you, the way you describe Wizard of Oz, this idea we move from black and white to color. It's interesting yeah. to me that you say that because I know that, you know, the the real world stuff was in color and the, the computer stuff was shot in black and white, my understanding, just so they can do yeah. those effects. When, oh, yeah. It, yeah, it was. Speaking of auditioning, when you auditioned for Tron, Tron was a breakthrough for many things, including the use of computer generated images. 
Right. So, but at a time where, you know, it only had been used a few times in film prior to that, did you, even in an audition process, are they explaining or testing you in a way to see if you're going to be able to act against nothing, essentially? Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, actually, it was from uh, Harvey Lembeck's class. I was dating one of the guys Mm. in one of the classes. And he took me to this. He took me to lunch at the Chronicle restaurant in uh, Venice, California. And he was with some people because he was going to be in this cartoon. And I was having lunch, uh, you know, and I'm listening and they're talking about this cartoon. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. You know, and I went away to do Caddyshack. And I didn't work for a long time because John Peters made good on his promise to blacklist me. He, I, I will never blanking work again because I would never, wouldn't shoot mm-hmm. the new team for Playboy. I just said, no, I, I agreed to this. I can't do that. And also I had enough background in film just from the communication cut that I knew they wouldn't get a good still for like 20, 30 years. So uh, I said, I said, no, you know, uh-uh. and they sent him anyway, screaming and yelling. And I didn't work for a long time afterwards. And then all of a sudden I get this call to go meet with the director and Jeff Bridges, who I didn't remember and Jeff Bridges and put me on camera to test. Wow. And I was, and I, and it was terrible. <laughs> it, was awful. I, I, it made no sense. It was physical. The words made no sense. And, mm. and, and I got the job. What I didn't realize was that lunch I went to, yep. the guy I was dating, uh, Tron originally, Flynn and Tron were the same character. This, this act, Larry, Larry Anderson is the actor who still is a, a, a sweet guy. Like Many years later, I said, Larry, was that Tron? And he goes, yes. And I never took another actress to lunch again. <laughs> <laughs> he was out. I was in. I, but, but, but I, you know, I didn't take his, but that's what, that's how I got that job eating lunch. I see. That makes sense, too, because I had read that read how uh, Steven Lisberger was originally planning it to make it an animated film until he started yeah. learning about the technology that was available uh, yeah. to make that's, it what it was, what it became. That's right. And so you bring up John Peters and I won't say another word if you don't want. No, to. No, go so, ahead. So, go ahead. You say anything you want. I've got I've got. More to say than you can imagine. Well, I noticed in the past you've been reluctant to talk about it, but you know we're living a different world now, a somewhat different. Well, world. Well, now that everybody knows what, who, who and yes. what he is, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah you know, and, and it wasn't just that John Peters was so bad; it was that I called my agent and I said, "Help me." Right. And he said, "Honey, you're not a doe-eyed girl from the Midwest. Handle it." Oh boy! So I boy. came back and fired him. Uh-huh. And he became a head of cast, casting at ABC, and uh-huh. I never got another job at ABC except once when it mm-hmm. sort of slipped through. You know, you know, it, people not only don't protect you, if you dare to speak up and defend yourself right. and then walk away from them for not doing their job when they should have been sued, just walk away, they will get even with you forever. And let me tell you something. We had a little conversation about something that I won't go into in detail right. during this live broadcast. Right. That exact thing happened there. Somebody did mm. something. I said, you can't do that. That's not what the contract says. And they said, I am doing that. And I said, well, then you can't be part of this deal. And they made sure that I was X'd out of the deal, wow. which is illegal. And um, sure. Quite frankly, I don't like to sue people. It takes a lot of time. It's very exhausting. It's not in my nature. But I think there's a criminal charge. Yeah. What happened to you? You know, the terrible thing that happened to you so many years ago. It's still happening today. It's never, ever over. Trust the only difference between now and then is that people are being a little more careful uh, about what they say and what's in the contract. But it's still happening today. It's in the last month. I can, I can, you know, not that I'll no. stay now, but right. yeah, it's still happening. 
So I had planned to ask you if now, you know, with the Me Too movement, you felt somewhat vindicated or or, or experiencing PTSD. PTSD does come up uh, and uh, every so often, for example, uh, the, the time I really felt it is when um, there was the... Um, well, it didn't affect women. It affected men. But it's the Penn State thing that happened about five years ago where they and the, the, the man who actually had to tell the truth because he was called before a grand jury had to leave the state. What happens in a situation like that? People think the incident is the worst thing that could possibly happen. Just so you know, the cover up is far worse. Mm. Uh, well, I, I, I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through that. Obviously, it's it ain't over, pal. Well, <laughs> Well, but, but but here's the thing. I went home that night when John Peters took away my paid ads and my billing and my agent didn't stand up for me. And I knew that I wouldn't work for a long time after I did that scene. And it was a very tough scene to do. And, and, and in fact, goofy John Peters actually kind of did me a favor because I was afraid of that scene. And by the way, you're never completely nude. You make friends with your wardrobe department. They'll never get the shot they want. Mm. Uh, believe me. I, you know, I know where the camera is. I know where the lights are. But He made me so angry that he took away everything I had. And I said, he broke my contract, but I knew they already had enough film in the can and they couldn't go back and reshoot. So I walked in there and I cleared that set myself. I said, I want to, I want to see four people that director. They have the old camera. So I said, that director of photography is going to be the camera operator. We need a focus puller. We need that director and and that actor. And until then I got all day, take your time. Mm. I learned a lot of new words that day, (laughs) (laughs) but I'll tell you something. That was the only damn way I could do my job. Get the hell out of my set. This is a job. Get, get out of here. And there were people behind the drapes under the bed. You know, this was just, you know, get out of here. And, And I grew up a, a blue collar kid, you know, I, I worked for my dad in the factory. It's the same thing. You know, I got a job to do. Get out. <laughs> in a situation like that, I suppose you have to exert whatever power or control you can because so much of it yeah. is they're trying to take away. And you know something? There was backup. The, I remember my hairdresser, you know, they, they looked at my contract. They said, honey, you don't have to do that. The photographer was sent to this. He, he, the photographer was there. And by the way, I don't have a problem with Playboy. Playboy is a legitimate modeling agency in the city of Chicago. I mean, like for catalogs and things like that. And, and, and one of the photographers I knew is still a friend of mine. You know I mean? It, no. But what they were trying to do was something else and take something else. And I went home that night and I looked in the mirror thinking, okay, you just threw this all away. But can I tell you something? I could look myself in the eye. Wow. It was the best thing I ever did. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, here's the good news. Yeah. I'm still standing, mm-hmm. and the bitch is back. <laughs> how many How many Elton John songs can you name that will apply to this? <laughs> Speaking of great songs from the 70s, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Cindy's yeah. decided that, that she's firing all of her texts because she's tired of them speaking. I'm, I'm speaking about myself in the third person. That sounds crazy. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, tired, I'm tired of being uh, hijacked by technicians and so on and so on and so on. I've taken over my website. I'm redesigning it. And by the way, uh, with GoDaddy, it's like putting together a Facebook page. So in, in talking about the internet and how, you know, you're taking this control over your, your own uh, brand. Yeah. Um, yeah. At some point, because Tron was not only a breakthrough technologically speaking, but it was, you know, somewhat prescient as far as how caught up oh, folks yeah. would be in this virtual world. At some, oh, God, yeah. At some point in the years since, it sort of snuck up on us, but is there at some point where you start thinking, 
This is kind of getting like Tron. And you have no idea how much I think about yeah. that, <laughs> and and uh, how exactly it, it has become. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's like Orwell's 1984. Yeah. It's it's we're way past, we're looking at 1984 in the rearview mirror. Uh, yeah, the, the the master control program is all over the damn place, and. That's where taking responsibility, common sense, having ground under your feet. No, it's really hard to to say, I know this to be true. Mm. And this is where I can bend, but I can't bend anymore on this one because I'll break. Right. So you got to you got to know how far I'm I'm not pushy, but I won't let someone break me because that belongs to me. Right. So CindyMorgan.com is where you can find me. I'm real easy to find. And so we've got so much technology now that can, you know, again, China's prescient in, in that sense. How are you using it to your advantage now? In, uh, you've got this background in communications. We've got great platforms like podcasts. Any thoughts about having a program of your own where you... Uh, I'm glad you suggested program? that because yeah. because why the heck not? You know, I need some really cool people. The, one of the best things about the autograph shows I get to do mm-hmm. is that when you're sitting on the other side of the table or you're in the green room, you meet the coolest people. Can I drop a few names? Because you're going to need a big shovel to pick these up. <laughs> I, 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 I was sitting at a show, and, and, and I had to move a sweater so William Shatner could sit, sit, sit down. And there's <laughs> Richard Dreyfuss standing over there, and then there's there's wow. Toby McGuire over there. And I'm just like, just breathe. Yeah, just breathe. You belong here. I don't know why, but you're here. So that is so fun. That the best Because we're all fans down deep inside. That's where the passion comes from, I think. Yes. You got to love what you do. And Cindy, we are a fan of yours and we've loved what you did in the 1980s. And uh, with that, I will say thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Such a fun and enlightening interview. Well, uh, I I thank you for stopping me from talking because I'd still be talking. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so there you go. Now, folks who listen to our show regularly will notice, and I think I've said it even, I've said it out loud. Uh, but, I, but I don't, I, I've said it maybe once or twice. We don't cover the deaths of celebrities on our show. I don't even generally mention them on social media. You know, when we do posts, we don't really do posts about that. Sometimes. Uh, the only one I could think of recently was Paul Rubens. Because, and just how, you know, meaningful and important, you know, his, his particular roles, especially Pete Herman were to us. Um, so this is not a, episode I wanted to record and uh, I hope to never feel so moved to do it again. And again, I feel loss and sadness when we lose folks like this, but uh, Sydney's particular history um, and uh, you know, unfortunate, uh, the turn again, yeah, the unfortunate turns of her career and then ultimately her life really just uh, upset, upset me. So uh, there you go. All right. Hey, we, but I promise you, look, our, our show is uh, on hiatus for January, but we'll be back for, for in February. And I promise you that we will be speaking about much more uplifting things uh, then. So I will talk to you next time on 1980s Now.